Good morning, history fans. I'm saying good morning because it is morning that I'm recording this. So, anyhow, uh, we left off talking about the Soviet Union ruling the East and America ruling the West, kind of. We had two big treaty pacts, NATO, standing for North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and the Warsaw Pact. And remember, they said, hey, if you attack one of us, it's like attack of alling us, all of us. So, it's kind of like, hey, World War One start up all over again. So, anyhow, the two superpowers had backed smaller countries, and... Um, have had little, I'm doing air quotes again, but you can't tell if this is an audio podcast, uh, amongst themselves. So we will just briefly mention these now, like the Korean War, the United States had backed South Korea, the Soviet Union had backed North Korea. Uh, Vietnam War, same thing, we backed the South, they backed the North. Uh, There was tons of other conflicts that all went on during this time. Um, these are the quick version. When we get into U.S. history, we'll talk about these much more in depth, but right now, they're sadly just an allusion to at this point. All right, so um, let's get uh, more into some Cold War stuff that we're going to talk about here from a world perspective. So the Soviet Union kept spending more and more money on bombs, but they also spent money on going to outer space, and they launched the very first satellite ever, Sputnik 1. Um, Also, um, now remember, the Soviet command or communist economy um, had trouble competing with the United States. Um, Just putting that in here right now, because this money issue of spending lots and lots of money, this is going to hurt them in the long run, and probably one of the biggest downfalls of the Soviet Union. So I'm just going to mention this now, that they're spending all this money on space and bombs and stuff. It'll come back to bite them in the rear later on. So um, this is kind of the incentive thing that goes all the way back to ISM's unit. So, anyhow, they launched the very first satellite ever. The United States, um, we are going to play catch-up, and then we launch Explorer 1, and this just leads to the space race. And eventually, man walks on the moon, but that's more of a U.S. history thing. So, anyhow, um, like I said, uh, the Soviet Union, they were spending lots of money on all this, and it kind of puts them into financial woes, and it leads to people being upset and civil unrest within the country. In 1956, Hungary uh, broke away from the Soviet Union. Uh, the uh, civil war broke out in Yugoslavia. Strikes went on in Poland. Um, all of this and much more was going on throughout all of the Soviet Union in different parts more so than other. So people were very upset, and they actually they wanted to get away from communist rule, some of them at least. And a lot of this took um, a physical manifestation in Berlin. And if you remember, the western part of Berlin was free democracy, and this was after the treaty of, um, I'm sorry, this was after the end of World War II. They decided to split up Germany. Well, Berlin, which was in the Soviet side, was actually free on the west side, but controlled by the Soviets on the east side. So, anyhow, people would try to get over to the western side, and then they could become free. So in 1961, in order to stop this, the Soviet Union built the Berlin Wall. And it started off very kind of basic, just some wire fences, maybe a few bricks here and here, here and there, but that was 1961. People got around this. Um, you know, they would cut the, cut the wire, or in some cases they went into buildings that were built right next to it and just, you know, go out on the second floor and jump over it and land on the other side. So this was, like I said, 61. Then we get to 62 through 65. It was an improved wire fencing, but still, for the most part, ineffective if someone really wanted to get across kind of thing. So 
Now we get into 65 to 75, um, they build a concrete wall. In total, there was around 5,000 successful escapes, um, but not as, not as many um, as were before. Guards were ordered to shoot on sight anyone who tried to escape. Um, people got a little more creative in their attempts to get away. They, some even kind of crazy things. They used hot air balloons, tunnels, um, full-speed sports cars ramming into it, or slinging across like Tarzan, or even going in the sewers. Now, granted, this became harder and harder because once the Soviets figured out that's what they were doing, they changed up and made it even more effective. And eventually they created a no-man's land, and this was an area between two different fences or two different walls. So they would put up one wall, and then they'd have a no-man's land, and then another wall. So if you made it over the first wall with like a ladder, it was going to be pretty hard to use that same ladder on the second one, assuming you couldn't bring it over with you as easily. So anyway, um, this was the area between the two fences or two walls. It later became known as the Death Strip, and they had no vegetation in this Death Strip. It was just sand, and the advantage of this was it was easier to see people's foot, footprints if they got over the first wall and made it to the second one, because even if they did make it through, you could tell where they got through and how to fix it and make it better for the future. All right, and then they have the next iteration of the wall in 1975 to 1989, and this was the Grenzmarer 75, or Border Wall 5, I think. Um, anyhow, this was the final version of the wall, and it was built in sections and then assembled, and it had a smooth pipe around the top of the, of, of the wall, and that made it really difficult to climb over because you couldn't get a good grip on it because your fingers would just kind of slip over it. Also, they had things such as signal fencing, so if anyone kind of touched it, it would make an alarm so you would know where the person was trying to escape from. Anti-vehicle trenches, so cars would not work or any kind of big vehicle. Barbed wire, um, attack dogs on very long uh, leashes, beds of nails under the balconies, um, sometimes known as Stalin's grass, over 116 watchtowers and 20 bunkers. This thing was formidable. So the Soviet Union exploited the East German workers during all of this time. They received some, but not much, of the basic benefits, including health care, free education, and housing. Um, but remember, we talked about how they had financial woes. So even though they're getting all this stuff, it's not exactly top quality. All right. Then comes a new premier or president um, who took control of the Soviet Union, and this was Mikhail Gorbachev, and he was the last premier of the Soviet Union. Um, he started to downsize like all military actions of the Soviet Union, so um, that's a great thing from the Cold War standpoint. He also practiced this thing called glasnost, which translates to openness. He ended censorship and encouraged people to discuss the country's problems, which very different from all the leaders we've been talking about in history. Also, he advocated this thing called perestrokia, um, and this meant the restructuring of the government and the economy. He reduced the role of the government so they're not as socialist as they used to be. He actually backed free market ideas, which seems more capitalist, 
And um, he he still did want to keep the essence of communism. And what that means, it's like, wait a minute, how can you have free market and reduce government but still have communism? It's because he, he wanted the idea of having like socialized medicine where everyone receives the same health care. Um, people still receive social security, retirement, and uh, free education, those kind of things. So I mean, it doesn't sound too bad on paper, really. So... Um, anyhow, as a result of this, many businesses struggled and failed without the government support um, because now they're on their own. If, if they don't produce good products, people don't buy them, and they would rather buy American products. So Soviet businesses failed because now there's competition, and before they were always just, you know, they produced whatever they wanted, and, you know, the Soviet Union was like, all right, here's the money for doing that. Thank you. So supplies were down and prices were up, uh, not going too well. And now we're um, people are very upset with the Soviet Union, which is kind of interesting because people are finally getting what they wanted, kind of. But um, it was mostly with the economic decisions and the economy going down. But um, communism in the Soviet Union was just kind of in a decline, and there was some political talks between you know the Western and Eastern powers. And then finally, in 1989, the um, German all of Germany was reunified and the Berlin Wall came down. Once the Berlin Wall came down, this was kind of the beginning of the end for the Soviet Union because all these uh, different countries within the Soviet Union started seeking freedom and, you know, kind of they had their civil unrest and the people were like, we want the Soviet Union gone. And this eventually led to the Soviet Union collapsing in 1991. So this was more and more countries started to declare their independence. Gorbachev, uh, Gorbachev resigned, and the USSR ceased to be after existing for 74 years. So um, moving on here, let's talk about post-Cold War areas of the world. So let's start with the Middle East. Because remember, all these areas had influences by the Soviets and by the Americans or Eastern and Western powers. So once the Soviet Union is gone, what's happening with the rest of the world? And a lot of these things still have influences today. So, for example, um, Islamic Revolution, um, Iran was having um, a lot of unrest, civil unrest in 1979. And an Islamic Republic was set up based on the Quran and the Shara, um, which are religious teachings. And effectively, this was setting up a theocracy, or government ruled by religious leaders. So um, Iran hated the West at this point, and you could argue still has um, issues with the West today, um, especially when their leader had to come to the United States for medical needs. The angry revolutionaries um, seized an American embassy in Tehran and held 52 hostages. So, um, you know, the leaders maybe felt a little bit differently about the United States, at least under this um, this theocracy that was set up, and the people, not so much. Um, and this was further expressed um, dislike towards the West and the tensions between West and Middle East or whatever. Um, during this time, the U.S. also backed uh, the Iran-Iraq war, and the United States backed Iraq. And if you know uh, about the uh, Gulf War and so forth. That's kind of interesting. The United States backs Iraq. We'll talk about that in a little bit here. In the end, neither side really gained or lost anything during the Iran-Iraq War, but both sides, were um, about a half million people had died. Um, let's talk about Lebanon next. Prior to 1975, many different groups occupied Lebanon. The 
Maronites, or Christians, the Sunnis and the Shiite Muslims, the Druze, which was uh, Islam, and many others. Um, so we have all these different groups and all these different um, you know, beliefs. Um, there was kind of a power struggle. However, I would say the Maronites, the, Maronites, the Christians, had um, a favorable advantage. Um, but anyhow, the division between all these different groups caused a civil war. Um, Israel took advantage and, and invaded southern Lebanon. Syria occupied eastern Lebanon. Eventually, the United Nations, if you remember them, came in to help kind of restore order. Uh, by 1990, Lebanese leaders had finally restored order, officially, I guess. Foreign influences were mostly gone, and Beirut has become an economic center of the Middle East. So they're doing all right. Let's fast forward here till, to 1991, the Gulf War, as I alluded to earlier. Iraqi troops invaded Kuwait. Um, for the most part, it was for trade and oil purposes. Saddam Hussein said that the area used to be part of Iraq. He was just going to take over that area that used to be part of his country. That should sound kind of um, familiar to Hitler in Austria. The U.S. saw this as a threat to its ally, Saudi Arabia, so this gave Iraq too much oil and control, so we sent over troops to help uh, liberate Kuwait, um, So, and that led to a lot of tension within the area, and we sadly don't have a lot of time for that um, in this unit or this era of history, but eventually we go back and we take Saddam Hussein out of power. So let's get into Europe after the Cold War. Europe has been working towards um, a lot of unity, and we see this with social and economic unity, and they created the European Union, um, which was kind of the basis of this. And the EU, or European Union, um, has a common market or no trade barriers. And that means that you, know, you can just travel very easily over all these different areas. You can trade equally as well, because everyone is under the same currency. Almost everyone. There's still a couple full um, holdouts. And this uh, common currency is known as the euro. And um, there's no more trade tariffs, as I mentioned. Political barriers were knocked down for greater unity. Um, you know, some people did not like this. Um, and there were and still are some discrimination against immigrants within this area. But for the most part, um, there's greater unity than they've ever seen within Europe. All right. Like I said, very quick overviews here. Let's talk about Asia um, and the cold post-Cold War. So China in the late 1980s, some citizens were demanding greater political freedom. I know 80s, we're still talking Soviet Union era, but it's kind of what we got here. Um, they engaged in protests in Tiananmen Square. Um, so we have people that are like, we want, you know, capitalism, democracy. We want better say in our government. And so... These protests that went on um, were met with force, and they became known as the Tiananmen Square um, Massacre. So if you get a little idea of where we're going with this one. So um, the government basically came in and surrounded the place with tanks and army men and just opened up fire on everyone. So um, more problems going on uh, to counter such a high population in China. They instituted a one-child policy. Uh, this had a devastating effect on the culture that values uh, males. So uh, very interesting issues kind of arose from that, which is a huge discussion for a, probably another class, but maybe um, something that we could bring up uh, early on with this policy is infanticide, uh, the killing of babies. They actually, modern day, you're not allowed to see ultrasound um, 
results because they don't want people to knowing if they're getting a boy or a girl with a pregnancy. Um, also, we see many human rights were being violated, free speech, use of prison labor, the suppression of the Tibetan uh, Buddhist culture. Um, Tibet is still under Chinese control today. And a lot of issues with um, just repression, I guess you could say, um, in China in general. Um, now we're going to kind of finish up, talk about a little bit of South Africa before and after the Cold War. So many non-whites sought equal treatment. Um, they were met with this thing called apartheid, which is legal racial segregation. So um, apartheid was being practiced in South Africa, um, leading up to this kind of change of all of South Africa, which we'll get to with Nelson Mandela. Um, but anyhow, many protests against apartheid were dealt with very harshly, kind of like the Tiananmen Square protest, as we mentioned earlier. Um, Nelson Mandela called for armed resistance, and he was put on trial and received life imprisonment, but he was only in prison for 27 years, which only. Um, but anyhow, while he was in prison, he kind of... Um, you know, didn't lose any popularity among the people, and eventually um, he would uh, become the first Democratic elected president, which we'll talk about here in just a second. But anyhow, um, a little more bringing us up to speed. Um, foreign boycotts really hurt South Africa, because that's a way that other countries can attack their economy without physically attacking South Africa. So this uh, um these kind of boycotts, along with protests and some violence, forced the government finally to take action. And in 1989, a new president finally got rid of apartheid. 1994, they held the first multiracial elections, where Nelson Mandela became the first president of um, of a democratic South Africa. And there's um, uh, Nelson Mandela just passed away here uh, in 2014, and. There's um, you know monuments and a lot of uh, good that he did for the country. Um, so we're going to stop there with the Cold War and post-Cold War. Obviously, there's so much more we can talk about, but sadly, this is a world history brief overview. I hope you enjoyed these podcasts, and uh, always check out some of my other ones if you're interested. Thank you so much for listening.